Tuesday. As you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, we're going to continue, and it's, I found it interesting to see all the connections of um, the aspects of this service with this message. Um, it's like God's in charge. <laughs> He's pretty good at that. Uh, I want to read verse, chapter 6, verses 12 through 19, and then let's pray. In those days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called the disciples and chose, them, chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called a zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue to go through this incredible gospel, the gospel that's meant to give us certainty and assurance of your life, of your death, and resurrection. Might our hearts continue to be open to receive from your Spirit. And as we've prayed the whole series, we continue to pray. Help us see. Help us hear. Help us feel your heart. And ultimately, Lord God, through all that, help us love like you love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The more I read the Gospels, and I don't know about you, I'm loving Luke. And it just reminded me again this week, Jesus' method wasn't with programs to reach the multitudes, but, but with men um, whom the multitudes would follow. His method we call discipleship. And the text has a whole lot to say about Jesus' selection of these men who he'd send out to change the world. Now, the setting of these verses that we're looking at, we see in verse 12 through 13, there's a word time that's used, and it's a general word uh, that's used, kind of like the, this season, uh, this general time, not necessarily a specific uh, hour of a specific day. It's during this time, knowing the significance of choosing these men, the process that he'd be taking them through, we read Jesus spending communion with the Father. And don't overlook that. The context of the choosing of these 12 is set in the context of communion with the Father. And as Jesus comes out of that time of prayer, this whole night of prayer, we see him act upon what he prayed about, I'm sure. And we have the sending of these 12. We're told that out of the disciples, plural, a larger group, he chose these 12. And they're not random. They're a very specific choice. He designates them 
apostles. There were 12 of them, which is not accident, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, which is significant because it tells us, ties the old covenant with the new covenant, reminds us that God's had a plan of redemption throughout history. And so don't look at the Old Testament and say, well, that's how God used to act back then. It has nothing to do. I'm just a New Testament Christian. No, you'd be a Bible Christian. There's a whole plan of redemption here. And the 12's not accident. And the people are very intentional. He chooses. Now, the concept of an apostle, which is really a messenger, refers to an ambassador or a representative, messenger, who's been invested with full authority on the one who sent him. And the concept of an apostle, this idea of a messenger, would not be unknown in the culture. Uh, it would be known. Because often rabbis would send out apostles, in a sense, or messengers. So when Jesus used the word apostle or this concept, it, it wouldn't be strange to his audience. They would understand it. But what is different is back then, if you were a disciple, so to speak, you would seek a rabbi out. It, it's kind of like going to a church and finding a pastor you like. You know, it was that kind of thing. You would find a rabbi of your choosing. But that's not what Jesus does. He chooses who follows him. He kind of flips the tables. And he says, I'm going to handpick. You guys, in other words, you guys aren't going anywhere else. You're, you're following me, and I'm picking you 12 to be apostles, to be messengers. Now, Mark 3.14 notes that the Lord chose them that they might be with him first. That they would not simply be associated with him, but that they would relationally be with him. They would grow in relationship. Depth of intimacy. The very first thing as a disciple we can learn as a follower of Jesus is that we're called to be with him. So before you do, be. <laughs> be in intimacy with him. All right, that's one of many lessons here. Um, but only after the time of preparation did he send them out. And their call was not an end in itself. It was really a next step in a sequential process, as we see throughout the Gospels. One, they believed in him. John 1, 35-51 tells that they, they believed in him. He called them to leave their occupations and follow him. They did. And then we read he chose them to be apostles, Matthew 10 says he specifically sent them out to preach to Israel. And then he sent them out beyond that to evangelize the world. So you kind of have this sequential process of Jesus choosing these 12. Now, Scripture tells us of their significance. He would remind them later, by the way, guys, you didn't choose me. I chose you. There was a divine selection which we would not be surprised then that there's divine power behind that selection, which would result in God-type activity. And here's how the significant impact this group gave. One, they were the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 says the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. These apostles were the foundation of the church. They received revelation, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, Ephesians 3.5. The New Testament was written by apostles or close associates of the apostles, and before the New Testament was written, the believers were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, Acts 2.42. 
Thus, the teaching we have recorded in the New Testament is the authoritative source of doctrine that the apostles were part of receiving that revelation. They were given to edify the church. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 tells us God gave some to be apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the works of service, to the building of the body of Christ. The apostles were given to edify. The apostles were given or lived honorable lives that we might imitate them. Not only was doctrine authoritative, but Ephesians 3, 5 calls the holy apostles, leading Paul to exhort believers to be imitators of them in 1 Corinthians 4, chapter 11, and then 1 Thessalonians 1. Not only did the apostles live honorable lives, the apostles were given miraculous power. This confirmed their message. The marks of a true apostle, the author of Hebrews tells us, were with signs, wonders, and miracles. This is a significant group. A significant team, if I may. But despite their privileges and their significance, which we see, they were common, ordinary guys. Humanly speaking, the twelve hardly seemed qualified for the task Jesus was calling them to. But God continues to use inadequate people. This is what he's got to work with. While knowing their weakness, faults, and shortcomings, he also saw their potential under his power to change the world. Let's get an overview of these guys. I want to look at this team. And, and what I want us to look at is Jesus' selection in them and why. And, and what, a, what a team of variety this is. We wouldn't have picked them, i got to be honest. I don't think Christians, especially in America, which is celebrity-driven for some reason, I'm not sure we would have picked these guys. Matter of fact, we can be pretty critical as Christians. You don't believe me? Bring up the Kanye West and his proclamation of being born again. I find it interesting that Christians who, a lot of them who pray for revival, and all of a sudden, it seems like God's got a hold of somebody who's in a spotlight, and they're like, whoa, wait a minute, he can't be a Christian. I'm like, we just, haven't you been praying that there'd be revival in our nation? And maybe we should be patient with this guy. Maybe we should pray like when we were a young Christian, and he has time to grow, and that nobody puts pressure on him and stuff. And, and my point is, we kind of have an idea of who should be used of God and who shouldn't. And these guys wouldn't have been on our radar, I'm pretty sure. Now, you have an insert in your bulletin. might slip that in your Bible. It kind of gives a quick overview of um, the apostles. But I want you to note a couple things. First of all, there's four lists in the New Testament. Matthew 10, Mark 3, and Acts 1. Or three lists, I'd say. The names on all the lists appear in three groups of four. Always in the order, though the names in each group may be shuffled. Except Acts doesn't mention Judas Iscariot for obvious reasons. Peter's name is always the first name in the first group. Philip's is always the first name in the second group. And James, the son of Alphaeus, always heads up group three. Let's look at the team. Peter. He's first known as Simon. And then Jesus got a hold of him and said, you're not Simon, you're Peter now. I got, I got a different agenda for you. And, uh, but what a guy this was. I mean, impulsive, 
rough around the edges, would be a poor leader. He flew off, flew, flew off the handle. He deserted Jesus at his time of need, and that's Simon. But that's not Peter. Peter we read about in Acts. That's a transformed life. That's why he's called at times Simon Peter. And sometimes you'll see Simon used, which is interesting uh, when it's used that way. But Peter was chosen. He was equipped by God to be spokesman of the twelve. He became the most prominent of the twelve. None of the twelve spoke as often as Peter, nor did Jesus address anyone more than Peter, <laughs> nor was nor was another apostle rebuked as much as Peter. And Jesus named him Simon, named Simon Peter, which means rock. The Aramaic equivalent is Cephas. That's why, like in Corinthians, you'll see that name. He's referred to that way. Jesus wanted Peter's name to be a perpetual reminder of Jesus' call on his life. Jesus called him Simon, interesting, at key failures in his life, almost to remind him that you're living according to your old life, not your new one. You're Peter. And yet this impulsive, rough fisherman, he was on the team. He was chosen to be on the team. Well, there's Andrew. It was Peter's brother. Consequently, he was often placed in the background of Peter, usually mentioned in connection with Peter. And we see a couple snapshots of him as a man who had doubt and cynicism. But he's on the team. <laughs> he was chosen to be on the team. The Gospels also paint as Jesus got a hold of this guy, a man who was content to serve in the background. Like Peter, Andrew was from Bethsaida. The brothers later moved to Capernaum, had a fishing business, and uh, was successful. He was among the first to encounter Jesus. Andrew first was with John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. And Andrew said, See ya. I'm following him. Which was fine with John the Baptist. That was his job. Point the way, and then get out of the way. Andrew was quite the guy. His passionate commitment of his heart was to bring people to Jesus. He was without prejudice, as he was willing to usher Gentiles to the Savior. He eventually paid the ultimate price for his devotion to the Lord Jesus, because according to tradition, a provincial governor was ticked at Andrew because he led his wife to Christ. They had him crucified in an X. He preached Jesus until his final breath. But he was on the team. We're not sure we would have chosen him. James, like his brother John, is the son of Zebedee, a prosperous fisherman, well enough that he had employees. And like Andrew, he was content in the background. He's never mentioned apart from John. It's always James and John. Inseparable. Jesus gave both brothers a nickname, though. And it was an interesting nickname. It meant sons of thunder. It's almost like a WWE wrestling tag team. Introduce the sons of thunder. But it was almost like a joke, in a sense, because they had misguided zeal. They were passionate guys. Matter of fact, New Testament shows us a couple times this zeal was way out of bounds. Like one time they're going through Samaria, and James and John says, Hey, you want us to call down thunder and nuke them? And those are the kind of guys they are. And guess what? They were on the team. Team, Those guys were on the team. Then there's John. You just mentioned him. Of all the disciples, he seems closest to Jesus. 
I mean, whenever we see John, he's close to Jesus. He's not leaving too far. He was captured by the love of Jesus. So much so that when John refers to himself in the gospel he penned, he never refers to himself as me or John. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he identifies himself. If you were to walk up and John, hey, who are you? I'm a disciple whom Jesus loved. He was captured with the love of Jesus Christ. Are we surprised then that he wrote 1 John, which is about the love of God? I mean, who more qualified to write than someone who's captured by that love? John wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and he also penned the book of Revelation. And he was the only apostle to die, they believed, of a natural death. And yet this guy was rough. He, he was zealous for sure, but it was misguided, and he was on the team. Then we have the second group. Philip seemed to be quiet, but he's very analytical and reflective. He was a numbers guy. Probably at times to keep Jesus in the equation of those numbers. That was his problem. We wouldn't ask him to be on a team. He was on a team. Like the rest, he was Jewish, probably from a group of Jews who adopted the Greek language and some aspects of the culture and customs. Philip had gone to hear John the Baptist, and Jesus found him in Galilee and said, come follow me, and he followed. He was instrumental in the feeding of the 5,000. That's where we see his analytical mind as he tries to figure out how to do it. Jesus' words to him would suggest maybe he was the administrator of the group, certainly seemed to think that way. He was often confused with Philip the evangelist, we read in Acts, but it's a different guy. Not much information about his later life, but according to extra-biblical resources, Philip preached in Syria before being martyred in Asia Minor. Now, you're going to see a trend here. These apostles faced great persecution for their faith, and almost all of them were martyred. We pray for the persecuted church that started here and throughout the centuries today and probably in the years ahead. The church will continue to be persecuted. The church that's built on the apostles who were also persecuted. There's Bartholomew, Philip's close companion. Apostle John calls him Nathaniel. Both names refer to the same individual. So if you see Bartholomew, you might want to write in your margin, also Nathaniel. It was Philip who introduced Nathaniel to Jesus. That was an interesting encounter. Nathaniel seemed to be, Bartholomew seemed to be a student of the Old Testament because Philip comes to him and says, hey, we have found the one Moses and the prophet wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Are you serious? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Really? You've got to be kidding me. You see, you see the prejudice, he was on the team. Seriously. He made the team. He made the cut. But Jesus got a hold of him. Jesus said, you know what? I, I know what's in your heart, Nathaniel. And when Nathaniel recognized that type of knowledge of Jesus, he's like, oh, I'm going to follow you. And God used Nathaniel. Also, we know little about him after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Some accounts place him ministering in India. Others in Persia, Egypt. Some say he was beheaded. Others said he was skinned alive. But one thing is for sure, history tells us he was martyred. 
Then there's Matthew. We were introduced to him in Luke 5. He was a tax collector. Not just a tax collector. He was a hated tax collector because he would skim off the top, give Rome what they want, and he would just rip off people. Jewish people hated Matthew. He was hated. Guess what? He was on the team. How would you like it if you were James and John? What? You're putting him on this team? Got to be kidding me. He's been ripping me off. And, and probably all the other disciples, how did he make the cut? What's he doing on the team? But he is. He really doesn't appear much more in the Gospels other than the account we study in Luke 5. Most accounts agree he preached the Gospel to Jewish people before ministering to Gentiles, possibly the vicinity of the Caspian Sea. Believed to either have been burned at the stake, others perhaps say he was maybe stoned to death. Then there's Thomas. Boy, has he been known through the history of time, right? Doubting Thomas, there's a name for you. If, if you were to think of Thomas, if you could paint a picture of Thomas, think of Eeyore. There's Thomas. Always a gray cloud. Always skeptical. I'm not going to believe in Jesus until I touch the wounds. <laughs> Ain't going to happen, guys. And he was just Mr. Negativity. Again, Eeyore. And guess what? He was on the team. <laughs> he made the cut. Jesus chose him. But he was transformed into a powerful evangelism, evangelist as that pessimist vanished in the glorious light of the resurrected Christ. Strong tradition says he carried the gospel to India where he was martyred, possibly thrust with a spear. Thomas, another testimony to God who uses imperfect people. Third group, James, son of Alphaeus. We don't know much about him aside from the extreme privilege as being chosen as an apostle. Virtually nothing's known about him. And since Matthew's father was named Alphaeus, some say potentially they could have been brothers. Matthew and James. We don't know that for sure. In Mark 15, 40, he's referred to as James the Less. The word less, micros, means little. Was he little in stature? Probably not. I mean, I'm not sure you would call you know, a nickname, but maybe he was. It could just mean he's James the Less. In other words, not as influential or as well-known. The less-known type thing. Then there's Simon, who's called the Zealot. Refers to him as being zealous or passionate. Simon was a member of a radical faction known as the Zealots. They were passionately devoted to the law of God, violently opposed any intrusion upon it by pagans such as Romans. They were actually spoken of as a political radicals, and many were known as assassins of the day, perfectly willing to kill Romans and other collaborators. By the way, remember Matthew? Collaborator with Rome? They would have hated each other. Absolutely hated. They would have dropped the gloves and gone after each other. Guess what? They're both on the team. Both of them. That's who Jesus chose. He didn't make a mistake. Can you imagine Matthew coming? Oh, great. Looking around and stands opposite of him. He knows who he is. And so you kind of have that dynamic going on. Jesus always seems to be picking the least likely. Then we have Judas, son of James. Poor guy, got a bummer name. Matthew calls him Thaddeus. I'm sure he liked that better, Matthew 10.3. Little known other than he asked a question in the upper room. That's pretty much all we know about him. 
He spent his life preaching the gospel. He believed to be in places of Samaria, Syria, Libya, also suffered martyrdom. Then there's Judas Iscariot. The text tells us who became a traitor. You know, so much so, nobody names their kids Judas, right? And there's a reason for it, because he was known as a traitor. No one even names their dog Judas. I mean, we know Judas, but he was on the team, chosen to be on the team. As I thought about that, I thought, boy, the grievous times you've grieved too when there's been brothers or sisters or you thought were and they walked away. Walked away from the faith, walked away from the church. Isn't that grievous? And can you imagine what this must have been like? Nobody expected Judas to be the one. Probably the treasurer, by all appearances, there was, he was no different than the other apostles. Almost certain he was the only apostle, not a Galilean. He came from a village in extreme southern Judah. What a story and what a study he is. In regard to him and his betrayal, we see that biblical tension again between God's sovereignty, divine sovereignty, and human responsibility, which is evident in his life. His treachery was actually prophesied in Zechariah 11, 12 through 13. And he plotted a betrayal and greed was shown in it. He stands as the greatest example of lost opportunity and wasted privilege. There, ladies and gentlemen, is your team. Go change the world. Right? I mean, it's absurd. It's absurd when you look at this group. You're like, I remember gro- growing up when you play kickball, and you'd be on the playground, and they have two captains, and they pick the teams, right? I'll take Joe, and then, and then there's always the one kid who's last. We're like, oh, great. I got Nick. But this team is all Nicks. They're all rejects. And I, would, I find that encouraging. If you've ever felt rejected by people, or circumstances, guess what? He wants you on your team because Jesus chooses rejects. That's who he's going to change the world with. People who know enough to know that the only thing they bring to the table is Jesus. Because of this odd group, they had one thing in common. Jesus. He was the one that held it all together, as he does us as a church and every church. Jesus. He's the bond. Now, as I thought about his selection, I I really began to think more about this idea of what does it look like to invest your life into somebody? Jesus chose these 12, and he poured his life into them for three years, sent them out, and they changed the world. So what do I learn from Jesus' selection? What can you learn? There's some real specific, I, I put observations, but they're even more than that. They're really applications, and they come from his example. When I talk about discipleship, when Jesus models discipleship, it's relational. You need to understand it's relational. First, it's relationship with him to be with him. You become a Christian not by an association with a church, but association with Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection on your behalf. It's coming to Jesus and saying, I'm dead apart from you. I'm sinful. I repent of my sin. And, and, and the offense it is to you, a holy God, and I now trust in your work, your perfect sacrifice on my behalf. And we enter into a relationship with him. 
once we enter that relationship with him, we look for people we can pour our life into and help grow in that relationship. It's relational. We must spend time together. There's no cookie-cutter machine that just spits out mature Christians. He calls us to pour our life into another human being, another believer. And there's simply no substitute for getting with people. And it's ridiculous to imagine that anything else short of a miracle can develop a strong, growing Christian disciple than another person helping them grow. Think about your Christian life. If you've matured and grown, you probably can look, but not probably, I'm sure you can look back and say, this person, this person, this person poured their life into me and helped me grow. Or are currently, I hope. And yet God calls us as a Christian not just to sit and soak, but to invest and disciple other people. And it's always relational. Ministry is relational at the heart. And here's some things to maybe help you in a practical way to invest in someone's life. It's a good goal, maybe, as you think about it. Because if you're like me, you're like, I don't really have a lot of time. I'm sure you're thinking that, right? I got this, I got work, I got this to do. And, uh, and the holiday's coming, I got yeah, 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 all this to do. And I don't really have time to meet with somebody and invest in them. First of all, that's a real problem if you're saying that. But let me help you put some of the pieces together. Here's a goal, never go anywhere alone. If you're going hunting, why don't you take the person you've begun to build a relationship with? This young Christian, this undiscipled Christian, why not take them with you? I mean, you're out in the woods, it's not like you have an absence of things to talk about, right? And, and talk about things. Help them grow in their relationship with Jesus. Model for them what it looks like. You're going Christmas shopping, why not take your neighbor or the person you've been meeting with? Why not do that? Go to St. Cloud, Costco. Who can you take with? Who have you begun to build a relationship with and disciple in their faith? Who can you take with you? Start there. It's about discipleship on Jesus' terms. Jesus' terms is discipleship's relational. It's about building relationships with person, helping them. The second thing I get out of this is discipleship is about training committed common people. These guys were as common as they get. The least likely. But discipleship's about training them committed, common people. And selection's important. Look for available, flexible, teachable, and dependable people. Some people say look for fat people. Faithful, available, and teachable. It's pretty good. Find someone who's committed to Jesus. And they, they just want to be who Jesus created them to be and serve him. Look for those type of people. Impart direction to help another reach their full potential in Jesus. What does this look like? As I look back over the, some of the most productive times in my life, I met with a group of young men well over a year, once a week at 6.30 at the Renegade Restaurant. We'd get together, went through design for discipleship, talked about prayer, went and prayed, went and witnessed together, did some different things as young men, as I, as I worked with them. I wasn't even a pastor then. I, who am I to do it? And I, but I was a Christian who loved Jesus, and I, I wanted them to follow Jesus too. And so we spent well over a year. had a great time. I was called by another young man. We had some things in common. We both liked basketball, and he was a lot younger than me. And, uh, and he was married. He called me one day. He says, my wife wants a divorce. Just 
still you know, only a couple years married. And, and so I began to meet with Dave, and uh, he was hungry for God. God was using a really difficult time. And we prayed about his marriage, but didn't talk much about it. He just wanted to grow closer to God. I thought, there, there's a way you handle things, right? Grow closer to Jesus. Let him change you. That's the best thing you could do for your marriage. And so we spent quite a bit of time together. He'll still contact me periodically. And, and we talked about growing in the faith. He's plugged into a good church over in Wisconsin. But he was faithful. He was hungry. He was teachable. Look for those kind of people who are committed, teachable, and hungry. So who's your man? Who are you pouring your life into? Who's your woman? Peer. Is there a peer you can help? Now, hopefully this goes without saying, but you, you always start with your family. You, you need to help disciple your family and help them grow. But don't end there. Find a coworker. Find someone who's new in the faith or undiscipled in the faith and begin to take steps to build into their life somewhat. Now, I'm a practical guy, and so I'm like, well, okay, if I'm sitting here in a congregation today, you're like, I don't even know how to get started. Well, I'm going to help you. Okay, here it is. Last application point. How do I get started in investing in another life? Here you go. First of all, ask God to give you a sensitive spirit for identifying someone to disciple. God, give me a sensitive spirit so I could, I, I, I could find that person you really want me to invest in. Be on the alert. Don't scratch someone off the list <laughs> like we probably would of these guys. Stay open. Stay open. Reach out slowly. In other words, what I mean by that is invite them to a ball game or invite them to the grounds. Find out what they like to do. Give that a try. And start slowly. And then when you meet, just make one more time to get together. And start slowly. Don't overwhelm them and say, hey, first time together, let's open to the Old Testament and, and, and it just fire hose them. Don't do that. Probably the only time you meet with them. <laughs> Don't fire hose them. Start slowly. Build a relationship. Identify where they're at in their walk and be honest and vulnerable about where you're at. And begin to make specific plans to meet again and then even more specific plans as you begin to build of how you can help each other grow. And then model things for them. Help them to see your marriage. If you're married, let them to see what a marriage looks like between two Christian people. Parenting, invite them over. Show them how bad of a parent you are. Just kidding. Um, show them how as a parent you do your best, but you're not perfect. And um, Invite them along to witness with somebody. Say, hey, I'm going to have coffee with somebody. I don't think they'd mind you coming along. And just bring up Jesus in a normal way and let them see and experience how that goes. So it's not just telling them jesus told his disciples a lot of things but he modeled it for them and the only way that happens again is in the context of relationship so let's learn from jesus model and as we go through the rest of luke watch his model because i mean it's beautiful how he works with people and how he helps people and so let's learn from jesus selection of a very unlikely group a ragtag group the selection of the common for an uncommon calling. And, and he selected you and I to be a part of that. And so let's go forward. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you choose ordinary, sometimes we'd call weird, just people you want to use and change 
And God, you were really good at changing atmosphere, changing workplaces, changing schools because of normal people surrendered to you. Might you find us surrendered? And God, I know that this could be challenging for someone in here who maybe has never discipled somebody, that this is really new to them. Lord, I pray that your call on, your, on their heart would be so strong that just little steps of obedience would be taken this week. Maybe it's just a phone call and getting together for lunch with somebody or going next door and just striking up a conversation. Whatever that step would be, make it clear to them. And Lord God, give them the courage to take it. And Lord, I know what you would love is that this church would be a church of people discipling each other and others. That we'd be helping each other grow in our faith. So Lord, we too could change this community for your kingdom. And it's in your strong name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. As we close the service, just a couple things I want to make you aware of. Um, one is, at about 11.30 here, and not about, at 11.30 here, uh, in the sanctuary, uh, members, you'll be voting on the church name uh, change. Hopefully, you either picked up something back there or watched the video, or else you're really not going to know what you're voting on, necessarily. So, uh, if you haven't, there's a fl um, flyer in the back table, and if you haven't exposed yourself to it, please read it before you vote. Um, pertinent information there. Um, also, if you're new here, or you're like, yeah, I've been coming a while, I'm kind of interested in membership, but I have a few questions. Uh, we're going to be meeting at 11.30 at Discovering Elam in my office. And so if you've already signed up, great, head up there. Uh, if, you're, if you'd like that, it's, it's not a long time, but great chance to know a little bit more um, about the, the ministry here at Elam. And, so, and also, please remember, there's a prayer team available uh, to come stand with you in prayer. Do you stand for the benediction? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, everybody.